Oh, it's so good to be together. I was traveling a few uh, uh, days uh, late in this week, and it's, um, I feel a little disoriented, but it's good to be among you and with familiar faces and doing this thing that we do, most of us, uh, over the course of much of our lives, most of our lives, and just to keep up this rhythm and discipline of gathering uh, as the people of God on Sunday mornings on the Lord's Day for worship and listening and encouragement. It's just good to be together, good to see you. Glad to have those of you with us on live stream as well. Uh, welcome again to our time. We're continuing this morning with our study of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount found in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. We've been in this for a number of months now. Uh, this morning we get to what has been called uh, by some the capstone of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there's still more to come. About another month or so we'll finish up uh, during Lent. Uh, but this morning we get to a passage, a verse, a sentence uh, that's often been called the capstone of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not necessarily uh, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has more teaching, more rich and important, uh, and remarkable things still to say in wrapping up. Uh, but in some ways, this is the peak of his sermon. Uh, so um, before we turn to the scriptures, let's pray one more time. Join me. God, we uh, stand before you, sit before you, open our hands before you, uh, do our best to be attentive to you, uh, are glad to be together, gathered in your name. We ask that this would uh, be a time for us of ingesting and of uh, processing, of feeding, hearing, and being uh, by your word and your will and your spirit uh, transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Give us ears that are good to hear, hearts that are truly fertile soil. Uh, help us uh, to be receptive to that which you would have us know and become. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly and forever forgotten, deleted. Amen. So picking up where we left off last Sunday, this morning we're in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, beginning at verse 12 and reading just verse 12. It's a verse uh, familiar to most of us, found also over in Luke's Gospel in chapter 6. Listen closely to the Word of God through the Son of God, Jesus. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And that's where we're going to stop this morning. We're not going any further because in some ways that little verse, that one verse is its pericope, a little passage in and of itself. It is self-contained, but it is also, I think, for this morning and for me and probably for you, enough. It's enough. No doubt Jesus spoke these words many times in different places, different contexts, to different people, maybe even in different ways. Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And there are a variety of ways to translate from Greek into English. The first part of that statement, the latter part is pretty straightforward. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Or in some translations, this is the law and the prophets. This is the law and the prophets. But there are a variety of ways to translate the Greek to English in the first part of Jesus' statement uh, in a variety of solid English translations. They put it differently like this. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want to be treated. So whatever you wish, 
And that word wish is actually in the Greek, but it's hard to, hard to work out in different English translations. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And so there's this element of thinking about it. In everything, another translation says, do to others as you would have them do to you. And as we can see, their meanings are generally the same with only minor nuances. Do to others what you would have them do to you for this sums up or this is the law and the prophets. The law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the prophets. All of those, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, and Micah, Nahum. And that seems clear enough. Just that simple message, do to others as you would have them do unto you. Clear enough, basic enough, logical enough, and universal enough. In fact, Jesus was not the first or the last to teach similar ideas, this reciprocal idea. Confucius, who lived 500 years before Jesus, is credited with having said, do not do to others what you would not wish done to yourself. The Stoics, also about 300 years before Jesus, had an almost identical saying. In the Old Testament Apocrypha, the words we find are, do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. Which sounds a lot or a little like the idea in the Hippocratic Oath taken by doctors at the beginning of their practice or their work. First, do no harm. But Jesus seems to be the first to turn this maxim from a negative saying into a positive one. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. Do to others. And that's actually a night and day difference than what anyone prior to Jesus ever said, ever taught. It was no less than the sweet and sagacious thumper the rabbit who said, if you can't say something nice, don't do anything at all. But Jesus is saying, say something nice to people, to others. And more than that, more than just say, do, do, poeo. It's this rich word, simple, small, has a variety of little meanings, a little basket, do, make. But in its simplest, it is do. But what do I do in a particular situation? In the Gospels, we see people coming first to John the Baptist, and then later and often to Jesus, and then in the book of Acts to Jesus' disciples, asking, what do I do? What should I do? What do I do next? What do I do now? What do I do? In response to what John the Baptist taught, Jesus taught, Jesus did, Jesus' disciples did, what now do we do? In Jesus' time, people are often counseled to ask sages, rabbis, and seers what to do. But Jesus says, in effect, in personal relationships, all that believers need usually to consult is their own feelings, their own wishes. How would we like to be treated in that situation or in this situation? Experts in Scripture and counseling... Specialists in doctrine and ethics, pastors and teachers, scholars and Christian leaders will always have a place, will always be useful in some way in the church and outside. But Jesus actually here is liberating his followers from reliance on them and from an abject, abject dependence on leaders. 
Jesus' disciples can now know with a high degree of certainty the will of God for their relationships. Most of the time by consulting their own self-interest. And Jesus' simple instructions here settles a hundred different points. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules in our conduct for all of the specific cases, situations, relationships, and conversations in which we find ourselves over the course, not just of our lives, but of every day. This is Jesus' little formula or panacea. Jesus gives to those who would learn from him and follow him some simple and very practical guidance, advice, more than that, instruction, the way. Of course, the direction that Jesus gives to his disciples doesn't seem to be inherently religious in nature. There's nothing really religious about it. It's quite universal. Nor is it necessarily always foolproof in and of itself. For example, if we treat someone from another culture only as we would like to be treated, our behavior may actually be to, be to them offensive. Fair enough. We may act in some way culturally toward another person from a different culture, but that sort of action to them may be different. So maybe not always 100% universally true. Or your love language may be gifts, and what you want people to do for you is to give you gifts over and over and over, this continual stream of physical, tangible gifts. Whereas the other person's love language is words of affirmation, and they have no use for your gifts. In that case, doing to the other person what you want done to you would actually be to shower them with words of affirmation rather than giving them kitchen appliances and clothes and jewelry and stuff and toys and chocolate, which have no use and do not communicate to them love. And so it's not always 100% literally. Another potential problem arises from maybe, for example, if one took Jesus' maxim and to another arena, ignore when your neighbor continually puts landfill garbage in their blue recycling bin when they have no more room in their garbage bin going to the landfill. Because that's what you would want them to do to you. That's not what Jesus is saying. Clearly, there were in our context for what Jesus was saying. There were also some parameters. And Matthew gives those to his readers in the form of bookends and specifically through Jesus' reference in this verse to the law and the prophets which you may remember Matthew records on Jesus' lips one other time way back toward the early part of the Sermon on the Mount, way back in chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. There Jesus said that he was not setting aside the Jewish scriptures and all the teachings therein, but rather he was coming to complete them, you remember, to complete the teachings of their scriptures, to unpack their scriptures so that they could see and understand, to deepen, to drill deeply, to restore, to recover their scriptures, and then in himself and with his body and his life to fulfill, to embody and satisfy specifically what the scriptures taught and required, what they were all about. Jesus refers at the beginning to the law and the prophets. I'm going to unpack these for you, reveal, open, restore, and now in the end, he says, this is what it was all about. And so in between, there are these bookends of the law and the prophets. And that's what we've been talking about over these last number of months. What Jesus does with you have said, 
you have heard it said, but I tell you, you have heard it said, but I tell you, you have heard it said, you have read, you have seen, you have believed, but I tell you. And Jesus drills deeply. And so we have this clear sense that Jesus' maxim here, do to others what you would have them do to you, refers specifically not to the taking out of your garbage or the separation of recycle or to one's love languages, but to the way one treats one's enemy, to the way to one's relationship with money, to the one's relationship with one's spouse, to one's relationship with or toward one, ones to whom one might lust. That's the body of teaching specifically around into which Jesus was applying these words, this teaching, this principle. So now Jesus, as he nears the end of his sermon, this little teaching, this little command to do to others what one would have, what one would want done to oneself is the concise summary, Jesus says, of the teachings of all of their scriptures. This is the law and the prophets. You remember, uh, and it'll come 15 chapters later in chapter 22, Jesus is approached by Sadducees, testing and quizzing him, wanting to know more. Jesus answers their questions. The Pharisees follow. Other experts of the law ask him, what's it all about? Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he attaches to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's another form of what Jesus teaches up here, high on the mountain, in conclusion to all he's taught before. This is the law and the prophets, doing unto others what you would have them do to you. But again, Jesus' teaching is different than any other teaching before his, because Jesus was not about what not to do, but rather about what to do. The law, and we're familiar with many of them in our world, legal principles tell people what not to do don't they? Laws accomplish that, but Jesus called people to something completely different, completely other, and completely greater. Not just to be law-abiding citizens in our world. A person could satisfy, could then, and still can now. The laws of the land, by doing no harm, by refraining from harming others, by basically doing nothing in action which is what people so often do, but which cannot be considered by any measure of Christian goodness, or in Jesus' words, a goodness or a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. In action, sitting one's home, obeying the civil laws, doing no harm, doesn't get anywhere along the way toward the goodness or the righteousness or the abundant life or the good life toward which Jesus is drawing his students through his teaching. Laws keep us from doing harm. Though doing the bare minimum, keeping such laws use, uh, leaves us useless to our neighbors. But love calls us to action and doing. To love someone is first to wish them well and then always to act on their behalf. First to wish them well and then to do on their behalf to act on their behalf and their well-being, their benefit, to do toward their well-being, their benefit, their blessing. That's love in the scriptures. Only then does the rule of Jesus, 
only then does this rule of Jesus become golden. It's not golden in our minds. It's not golden in our thinking. It's not golden in our not doing. It's not golden in our doing no harm. It becomes golden. That's golden. When we do to others. As we ourselves, when we think about it, when we wish for ourselves, as we do to others what we might wish for ourselves or wish others would do for us. Laws compel us to not harm others. Love compels us to actually help others. Do to others, do to others what you would have them do to you. Laws compel us to not harm others. Love compels us to actually help others. Jesus said, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Who can do this? None of us on our own, and that's why Jesus taught last week in the sentences right before this in the Sermon on the Mount to ask God for help. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Again, we have more context for that teaching from last week because now Jesus applies it to something else. It's against our nature. It's against my human nature to do for others what ought to be so obvious and what I want others to do for me. It's so often against our nature, but Jesus says in the struggle and the hardship and the challenge, in the difficulty of doing that, ask God for help and he will help you. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And what are the good gifts? The ability, the power, the impetus, the compulsion, the desire, the willingness, the readiness, the eagerness to do to others what we would wish or hope or love or like that they would do to us and for us. Do to others what you would have them do. It sounds really simple, like we would see this on a refrigerator magnet, right? It sounds simple, sweet, pithy, and easy. But it's not. I discovered over and over and over over the last several days. You will struggle, or if you were like me, you, were, you will struggle. And so Jesus tells his disciples to ask their Father in heaven. They needed help. We need help. God will help us as we pray, as we seek, as we continually, you remember last week, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And God will give. God will provide. God will help you in this particular realm. Ask, seek, knock was also so often taken out of context. I want you, God, to give me all of the things I want for me, for my pleasure. Not what it was about. And with God's help, and only with God's help, the person who is in Christ, who has the love of Jesus in their heart, will, can begin to live in Jesus' way. She or he will begin to satisfy the positive aspects of Jesus' way. Forgiving others as they want to be forgiven. Helping others as they would want to be helped. Serving others as she would like to be served herself. Encouraging others as she would like to be encouraged by others. Don't we all want that? Blessing others, thanking others as we 
would like others to think or bless us and so on. The person who earnestly wants to obey Jesus here will never be seeking to avoid things, but rather will always be looking for things to do, Jesus says. And clearly this will make her life much more complicated. If you were thinking that following Jesus was going to simplify your life, maybe not so much all the time. To follow Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to do what Jesus says here to do will inevitably complicate one's life. Clearly this time, this person will have less time for herself and her own desires and her own activities because time and again, she will have to stop what she's doing for herself in order to do for someone else. And there will be joy in that. This handful of words from Jesus will dominate her life. It will come to dominate her life inside and out, at home, at work, at school, among family and friends and strangers, morning, noon, and night. And like This a person cannot live until she, as Jesus says, dies to herself. Jesus' hard words buried in the middle of the Gospels, not in the Sermon on the Mount, but elsewhere. To obey Jesus here, a person must literally become a new person. We over-spiritualize in some ways. Jesus' language, Paul's language about dying to self, about, about becoming a new person, about being made new. The old has gone away, the new has come. Oh, but this is so much, very a part of it. Very much a part of it. To obey Jesus here, a person becomes a new person. And she has a new center of life. She will. And while this sounds really good, it will also be profoundly good. And profoundly beautiful. It's the abundance of which Jesus described. And this is why this little command of Jesus is the capstone of his Sermon on the Mount and why it has been called the golden rule. And just this little sentence, less than a verse, has the power to not only change the condition and character and trajectory of a person's life in Christ, but also to change those around her, her household, her relationships, her neighborhood and her community. Imagine a whole bunch of people Who took seriously these words, these few words of Jesus, just this one little directive? Imagine a collective or a community or a group of people who made this obedience to these words of Jesus their collective mission. What if following the teaching of Jesus here in the way of Jesus, to love all people as they themselves would want to be loved, what would that look like? or to serve their neighbors generously as they might want to be generously served by their neighbors, or poured into, what if they were willing to pour into younger people as they would have liked to have been poured into or did like to maybe when they were younger? Are you with me? This is how a person becomes love. This is that fourth value of ours fifth value, to cultivate spiritual growth continuously. This is how a person is renewed. This is how their life is transformed. This is how they are remade. Imagine what obedience to this one little sentence of Jesus could do for a person. This is how we are molded and shaped into the likeness of Jesus. In action, 
is no longer a possibility. Inaction doesn't usher in God's kingdom, which Jesus said was coming and near. Inaction, indifference, apathy toward one's fellow human beings is not the way to life in God's kingdom. You remember this is all where things started back at, well, a little before chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, but in that chapter 4, Jesus shows up on the scene. Hey, everybody, repent because the kingdom of God has come near. The king is near. The king has shown up. I'm here, and so this new kingdom, this new way, this new reality, reign and realm are available and accessible. And they are, and they are, when we do what Jesus says. So in everything you do, and that little Greek word, panta, it's there. In everything you do, do to others what you would have them do for you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And as you and as we do, and if or as more and more people do, what we read in the news will change. Violence will disappear. Abuse of other human beings will decrease. Compassion will increase. Poverty will fade away. Hate will die. Love will thrive. Guns and instruments of war will be melted down into plowshares. Famine will cease. Police will have to look for other careers. The military-industrial complex will have to retool. Businesses will be completely transformed. People will tell the truth. Scams and phishing and fraud will go extinct and become words from our past. Love will abound. So in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do for you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. The gospel is certainly more than just that, but it is by no means less than that. So I spent a few days uh, reading this. I opened this up a few days ago and, uh, and then just wrestled with it. You know, it's one, one sentence. I'm an ordained minister of the word and sacrament in the Presbyterian church. I, it's one sentence from Jesus. Certainly I've got this one nailed. But over and over in interaction after interaction, over the last few days, I realized I don't have it nailed. Working with the auto shop, service industry, person, people, frustrated with, on my end, me not getting what I wanted, and found my reactions toward those people, my first reactions were not to do to others what I want others to do to me. Interaction with a family member who just irritated me in a variety of ways, my first reaction and my second reaction and my third was not to do to others what I wish they would do to me. Driving down the highway, my first reaction was not, but it can be. It easily can be, especially when I ask, seek, knock. It so easily can be to drive in such a way as I'm doing to others what I would have them do to me. In a store, who's going to go for it? In an airport, 
who would have thought there are so many opportunities to do to others what you would have them do to you in an airplane? If we allow just the simple, simple, simplest teachings of Jesus to permeate our lives, our lives, our hearts, our souls, our spirits can become profoundly different and renewed. And from us, and especially such a big group of us, leak out into our neighborhoods, our communities, our institutions, our businesses, our world. And with that, God's kingdom just coming and coming and coming. My question for you this morning as we wrap up, as we leave, is first a challenge to take this simple sentence with you today as you leave this campus and repeat it, focus it, pray it, ask it, hold it before God throughout this coming week, every day, every hour. What does it mean, God, for me to do to other people as I would like or wish for others to do to me in every instance? And if you're like me, it'll just be this thing after thing after thing after thing. So my challenge for you this morning is to take that and do something with it and not forget. And then here, in just a moment before we leave, just going to have a few moments of silence for you to think about those people in your life. The person at the help desk at the auto shop. The TSA person. The flight attendant who seems really chippy. That relative who gets under your skin so easily and so quickly and so annoyingly. Those people with whom you interact with each of them, what does it look like to do to them what you would love for others to do to you? And so uh, you can write uh, names down on the little card in front of you. You can send yourself a note on your phone. Or you can just in your mind say, these are the people, and go through and say, God, who am I not? But even then, I think my sense is that you will not know all of those people until you're living your life. And then along the way, as you're praying through this passage of Scripture, repeating it and saying, Jesus, I want to do it, they'll be added to your list. And you will be transformed. Let's take just a minute of silence, and then I'll pray. You did not leave us alone, God. You did not ignore us. You did not just let us be. You created, but then you returned to redeem and to restore and to reconcile and to heal. Save us from indifference. Save us from inaction. Save us from simply not doing harm. Save us from simply not doing evil.
impress and imprint upon our minds and our hearts today what it may look like to do to others what we would like done to us. And then give us the courage to see and to say yes. Over and over and over and over. Deciding again and again and repenting again and again and deciding again and again to do. Thank you, God, for all of the people in our lives to whom we have the honor and the privilege and the joy of doing as we would like done to ourselves. Help us in that regard. We ask, seek, knock. We continue to ask, seek, knock. Help us, prompt us to continue to lean, on, to lean and rely on your power and your grace in this realm, in these ways, in our relationships, in our world, outwardly and inwardly. And may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, in San Mateo, in the United States, in India, wherever your people are, as it is in heaven. Amen.